0: From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. The Royal Aeronautical Society hosts more than 300 events each year at its headquarters in London's Mayfair and around its global network of branches. Many events are free of charge for members and non members alike and every event attracts speakers and guests from every corner of the global aeronautical and space community. Visit our events calendar to learn more www.aerosociety.com events. We are proud to present the following lecture from the 2012 Named Lecture Series. The Named Lecture Series honors distinguished aeronautical pioneers and offers a platform to high-profile speakers representing all sectors of the aeronautical and space community. All content published by the Royal Aeronautical Society is subject to our website Terms of Use. Visit aerosociety.com for more information.
0: Um, now, as the Chairman of the Board of Trustees of the Stewart Memorial Trust and as Director General uh, Medical Services, RAF, may I, on behalf of Callum Stewart, who is here, Uh, this evening, and all the trustees welcome you to the 2012 Stuart Memorial Lecture. Before I move on to saying a few words about Bill Stuart and this evening's speaker, I would like to offer my uh, sincere appreciation and the Trust's appreciation to both the Royal Aeronautical Society and the Martin Baker Aircraft Company for their continued support and sponsorship of this lecture. William Kilpatrick Stewart was born on the 28th of June in 1913 and graduated from Glasgow University, gaining his MBCHB with honours in 1936. He joined the Royal Air Force Volunteer Reserve in 1939 and following much prestigious work at the RAF Physiological Laboratory, who soon became its commanding officer. In 1948, he was appointed consultant in aviation physiology to the RAF and later became a senior consultant. In recognition of his valuable contributions to aviation medicine, he was awarded the Wakefield Gold Medal of the Royal Aeronautical Society and also the Theodore C. Lister Award of the Aerospace Medical Association of the USA. In addition, he was appointed CBE in 1953 CB in 1954 and Honorary Physician to the Queen in 1966. His combination of scientific and medical training enabled him to take an active part in critical wartime aviation medicine research. In particular, he undertook experimental programs on the design and development of early oxygen systems, on the effect of heat and cold, on decompression sickness and made initial contributions to the studies of fatigue and stress and the factors that cause aircraft accidents. He had, I'm sure you'll agree, a remarkable and most exceptional career. And now to our speaker. Um, I'm particularly pleased to be able to introduce our speaker this evening as we were fellow young. Squadron Leader Medical Officers at RAF Aldergrove at the height of the Troubles in 1987-88. Uh, um, I suspect some of you weren't even born there at those times. Um, Nigel Dowdall joined the Royal Air Force as a medical cadet in 1979. During his service he completed gen- training in general practice and occupational medicine obtained the Diploma in Aviation Medicine and saw operational service, as I mentioned, in Northern Ireland and in Saudi Arabia during the First Gulf War. In 1996, he retired from the Royal Air Force as a Wing Commander and joined British Airways in, as an Occupational Physician, with particular responsibility for in-flight medical care, including cabin crew medical training. He was Director of Health Services for BA from 2004 to 2010, and then he was appointed to his present role as Head of the Aviation Health Unit at the Civil Aviation Authority in 2011. During his career, he's played an active role in the Aerospace Medical Association, served on the International Air Transport Association Medical Advisors Group, and has been an examiner for the Diploma in Aviation Medicine. His subject today is Cabin Crew, What Does It Take? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to introduce Dr Nigel Dardle.
2: Oh, it's good to see the technologies working. Um, Director General, Air Officers, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. Well, first of all, I would like to thank the previous DG, Air Vice-Marshal Chris Morris and the Stuart trustees for inviting me to give this lecture. I'd also like to thank Air Vice-Marshal Mazumdar for not changing his mind. (laughs) As Arup said, this lecture is dedicated to the memory of Air Air Vice-Marshal Stuart. Before I start, just the usual disclaimer. The views I express in this presentation are my own don't necessarily reflect the views of the UK Civil Aviation Authority or of any previous employer. What's the scope? Well, a bit of history. Um, This is a historic lecture, and it seems appropriate. Um, A few examples of some notable incidents to illustrate the role of cabin crew in saving lives. Then to discuss aspects of cabin crew fitness standards. What does it actually take to be a member of cabin crew? Uh, as I'm now a regulator, i start with the regulatory requirements, uh, then move on to some evidence and f- finishing up with, this is after all about a great researcher, some research in this area. Before I move into the, the topic, um, just a few words about Bill Stewart. Um, Aroop has already mentioned most of them that I was going to say, so thank you for that. A couple of things that he didn't mention. um, Air Vice Marshal Stewart was awarded the Air Force Cross in 1941, uh, and he was actually the commanding officer at the Institute of Aviation Medicine for uh, 20 years, from 1946 to 67. But almost some of that didn't happen. Um, I've been coming to these lectures for uh, quite some time. I'm used to hearing stories of his research work, and quite often he was his own guinea pig, uh, often at considerable risk to his own health. However, his massive contribution almost didn't happen. Um, In 1941, he was with a crew of five aircrew and two other researchers from the uh, physiology laboratory who took off in a a fortress uh, in northern England and they were going to undertake some altitude research. The aircraft uh, encountered severe turbulence and went into a steep dive. The pilot attempted to recover the aircraft, um, but just as he was pulling out of the dive, the port uh, main wingspar failed and the aircraft disintegrated. None of the six crew in the front of the aircraft attempted to escape, Two medical officers in the back were able to reach their harnesses and clip them on, uh, but Bill was the only one who actually managed to exit the aircraft and landed safely. His name is also remembered in the Stuart Memorial Prize, which is awarded annually to the Stuart student who achieves the highest overall mark in the Diploma in Aviation Medicine Examination. I I know there are some previous winners uh, of that prize in the audience, Um, You can't see the the names on the board, but if you looked hard, you wouldn't find my name there. Um, (laughs) However, I would like to recognise the hard work of those who did teach number 23 course in 1990, um, and I'd like to think that I've made the most of the opportunity in my career since. But hanging next to the the two plaques of the Stuart Memorial Prize at RF Henlow are two other prize winners. Uh, to other plaques, and these are for the the Barbara Harrison Memorial Prize. Um, The criteria for the winner have evolved gradually over the years, but I think the the current criteria that it's awarded to the student who's demonstrated commitment to others and determination to succeed uh, is a fitting tribute to Barbara Harrison, of whom more later. So what is your image of cabin crew? Well, might be of disruption. Um, but that was just a, a brief point in an airline's history. More typically, it's one of glamour. Um, this is the 1967 BOAC cabin crew paper dress. Um, and if you go to the BA Heritage Museum uh, at, uh, up in uh, Hillingdon near Heathrow, Water side, that's the word I was looking for. Um, you can actually see um, one of those dresses, so they, they are real. Um, glamour as well. Well, I think um, this airline needs no introduction, fun, um, exemplary service, that's Singapore Airlines for those who have ever had the uh, good fortune to fly with them, and of course, traditional British values in service at British Airways. So, That's the sort of image that a lot of us have. It's worth reflecting on how the role of cabin crews developed since the early days of air transport. And The world's first air steward is said to have been a German, Heinrich Kubis, who started serving on zeppelins in March 1912 um, before they started to be used for military purposes. Initially, he was the, the only member of cabin crew or air steward Um, But by the time he was serving on the Hindenburg in the 1930s, there were 10 to 15 cooks and stewards to look after the 72 passengers. I don't know if he ever received formal safety training, but he was on board the Hindenburg in 1937 when it caught fire and crashed uh, in North America. And he's credited with encouraging passengers and crew to jump to safety uh, as the Zeppelin plunged towards the ground uh, and he then finally leapt out himself uh, and he survived and uh, lived a long and fruitful life. So he was the first. I'd always thought that um, female cabin crew had been around for a long time, but actually the first uh, cabin crew were all male or cabin boys or stewards in the 1920s, uh, as you can see from this picture of an Imperial Airways Argosy. The first female flight attendant um, was a registered nurse, Ellen Church, who joined United Airlines in 1930. At that time, uh, American Airlines only recruited nurses as flight flight attendants. Um, But as the commercial airline industry grew, um, they couldn't recruit enough nurses, and so it gradually expanded to include non-nurses. So what's the role of cabin crew today? We're all very familiar with the, if you get on board an aircraft, you'll hear that the cabin crew are there for your comfort and safety. Uh, And I liked uh, this quote from Roy McLaren, uh, a former Director of Health Services at British Airways. In commercial air transport operations, the role of cabin crew may be described as assisting in the provision of rapid, comfortable and safe travel through an environment that is potentially hostile and occasionally lethal. And I think most passengers don't actually think about the potentially lethal environment they're in, Um, and maybe we don't want to remind them of that. (coughs) Before I look in detail at what, what it takes to make them, just a few examples of where they've really made a difference. I'm sure you all remember this incident, the American Airlines flight that ditched, or perhaps it's more correct to say made a forced landing in the Hudson River. I'm sure many of you remember the name of the captain, Chelsea Sullenberger, who was rightly credited um, and praised for his leadership in managing the incident and landing the aircraft uh, intact on the water—something uh, that's quite difficult to do in a jet. I doubt if many people have heard the names of the three flight attendants, Sheila Dale, Doreen Welsh, and Donna Dent, but their contribution. To actually getting the passengers safely out of the aircraft at a time when it was start already starting to fill with water was recognised in the uh, NTSB report. Also of interest from that NTSB report was that 70% of the passengers admitted that they didn't watch any of the pre-flight safety demonstration and more than 90% didn't read the safety information card, which you know we might think American passengers, but actually how many people, when they do get on board an aircraft, actually do watch the safety brief. Most people just think, I've flown lots of times before, um, I don't need to watch this, I know what's going on. Um, if that picture was a bit bigger, you'd see that virtually none of the passengers have got their life jackets on. And that's partly because most American uh, aircraft don't carry life jackets, um, but this particular one was fitted with them. It was part of the safety briefing, um, but most passengers didn't notice that aspect of it, didn't know where the life jacket was. This was in January. Um, The water was bloody cold. They were lucky that they were in a situation where they could be very quickly rescued. Otherwise, there might have been a few more casualties. So That's one example. Um, My next example, I think it's very clear that the reason people survived was down to the cabin crew. and This is the Air France flight um, that overshot the runway in Toronto in 2005. Uh, fortunately, it did stop just short of a major highway. Um, the cabin crew had virtually no chance to prepare for this accident. They'd been briefed beforehand that there was a possibility of a missed approach. so They were perhaps a little more alert than they might otherwise have been. Um, when the aircraft did come to halt, uh, The Air France flights have an an automatic evacuation alert that sounded from the flight deck. The captain pressed it and nothing happened. Um, So the cabin crew, without any guidance, they used their initiative. They recognised that a fire was developing and they started to evacuate the aircraft. Uh, Only five of the eight exits were usable. 297 passengers, including three wheelchair passengers, one blind passenger, eight children, one infant, were evacuated within the 90 seconds. Two two crew members and ten passengers seriously injured, and seriously injured includes simply things like broken bones, and there were no fatalities. As you can see from the bottom picture, that aircraft was completely burnt out. So, incredible. And rightly, the accident report commented on the training and actions of the whole cabin crew. But it's not just about aircraft accidents. Forty-six-year-old MP Paul Keach collapsed without warning while standing in an upper-class bar on his way to Washington with Virgin Atlantic. Um, Now you might ask, what would be your immediate reaction if an MP collapsed in a bar? (laughs) as he sustained a head injury as he fell. So it was thought when he was lying on the ground unconscious, Nobody, it didn't occur to anybody initially that he'd had a cardiac arrest. Um, it was the member of crew who went to assist him who noted that he had no pulse, called for the AED, commenced CPR. Um, and the AED was connected, it detected ventricular fibrillation, was given a shock. Um, and fortunately for him, um, despite the fact that he was very sick, he was in a coma for seven days. He ultimately made full recovery with, as far as anyone can tell, no lasting neurological damage.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> the last incident I want to describe is that of a BOAC flight um, from Heathrow to Sydney in 1968. Um, 116 passengers and 11 crew. And on the takeoff, it suffered a fail- catastrophic failure in a number two engine. And I think an incredible photograph. There's the engine. Somebody managed to capture that. Um, Fortunately, it fell into one of the gravel pits which surround uh, Heathrow. The entire flight lasted about three and a half minutes, so from the take-off roll to the eventual landing. Um, During the go-round, the crew prepared the cabin for the evacuation, briefing the passengers and trying to clear the cabin. Um, bearing in mind that the port wing was well on fire, the fuselage was starting to heat up, they had a pretty terrified bunch of passengers on board. Um, captain made a, an overweight crosswind, land, crosswind landing on the short 05 right runway um, because he didn't feel he had enough time to make it all the way around to land on the longer runway. 121 passengers were safely evacuated, 4 passengers and one cabin crew member died. So Why have I picked up this particular incident? Well, Initially, as you'd expect, the flight crew and particularly the captain were given all the credit for having recovered the aircraft, got it down safely and virtually everybody having got off. As you can see, uh, not long after the landing, uh, this aircraft was well alight um, and pretty well destroyed. Um, Captain Taylor was perhaps a bit something of a modern man. He uh, didn't take all the credit himself. He recognised the role that others had to play, in particular the cabin crew. And in the days after the accident, as the eyewitness reports came in, the action of one particular crew member um, was recognised for her outstanding courage, professionalism, and commitment to others. And this is Barbara Harrison. After the aircraft had landed, she was at the, the rear of the aircraft. Um, she and her colleague immediately noticed that the fire was coming round and that the port rear exit was unusable. So they opened the starboard exit, deployed the slide, and unfortunately it didn't deploy properly. So Barbara sent her colleague down the slide to straighten it out. So she was the only one left at the back of the aircraft. She got five people out before the slide itself caught fire and became unusable. She encouraged another two adults with their one of their children, to jump from the aircraft because she could see that the flames and smoke were such that there was no way they could go forward to another usable exit. She could then have jumped and saved herself, but she knew that there was another child and an elderly passenger in that section of the aircraft who hadn't yet left, so she was last seen going back into the aircraft. Subsequently, her body, along with that elderly passenger, the child and two others, were found together in the burnt-out aircraft. She was subsequently awarded posthumous George Cross. Um, For those of you who don't know, the George Cross is the civilian equivalent of the Victoria Cross. There have only been four female recipients, and Barbara Harrison was the only civilian of those four. But most cabin crew will never be involved in any of these life threatening incidents. Even serious medical incidents are not that common. So, what does it take to be a member? Of cabin crew, I mentioned regulatory requirements, so we better better do those first. Well, under ICAO, there are no medical fitness standards or recommendations uh, for cabin crew. There are specific requirements that they should be trained in first aid and in the use of the safety equipment. And most authorities reflect that they don't have any regulatory requirement for cabin crew medical assessment. Uh, Obvious examples being, for instance, the FAA in America or CASA in Australia. In Europe, we like to do things differently. Uh, In 2008, um, EU Ops introduced a requirement for medical assessment or examination of cabin crew, both an initial examination and then a periodic one. However, there's been wide variation in the application of this. So, for instance, in some countries, um, Spain and Denmark being particular examples, they require the cabin crew to have the equivalent of a JA class two, so private pilots medical examination. In the UK, um, we allow medical assessment by questionnaire only, uh, where appropriate. EASA is now taking over responsibility. They have a duty to try and create a level playing field. And they are introducing later on this year a regulatory requirement for initial medical examinations followed by five yearly medical assessments. The applicable standards are still under review and I'm optimistic that we will still finish up in a situation where we in the UK do not uh, insist on unreasonable medical assessment. Why do I say that? Well let's have a look at the evidence. Should there be a regulatory requirements for cabin crew medical fitness, they, they fulfill a safety role, um, can be physically demanding, and they work in quite a strange environment. Uh, it's mildly hypoxic, um, it's hyperbaric, and there's cyclical pressure change. They also have to cope with shift work, transmeridian travel, and let's face it, if you're a passenger and you want to sit at an exit row, you have to comply with some regulatory requirements as to your fitness and ability to. Uh, Open the exit and get out through it. However, evidence based medicine is a growing, growingly accepted, increasingly accepted, and in a paper in the Asthma Journal in 2009, Tony Evans, um, the chief medical officer at ICAO, commented on despite the growth and acceptance of evidence practiced throughout most fields of medicine. We routinely use the lowest level of evidence, i.e., expert opinion, unsupported by any systematic review, for regulatory aeromedical decisions. Now, he was actually talking about pilot medical examination, but I think it's equally applicable to cabin crew. And one of the things that Tony's very keen on is that we define what is the acceptable level of risk. Um, Should it be the equivalent of a commercial transport pilot's license or medical examination? Um, You could argue that it should be. They're both working in the same environment. They're working there for the same number of hours, so there's the same exposure to risk. Um, Fortunately, nobody has proposed that, Um, and I hope nobody will have a bright idea of doing that from this lecture. More commonly, people talk about, well, it's not a class one, so perhaps we should make it a class two. Um, Actually, in many ways, I find that even more difficult to understand because there is no similarity between the role of cabin crew and that of a private pilot. Um, not doing the same job, um, just completely different environment. OK, so we're not going to do that. Um, what about the National Private Pilot's Licence? That's a sub-I- sub-ICAO licence. It um, allows people to go flying. Two levels, unrestricted and restricted. Um, determines whether you can carry passengers or not, based on driving medical standards, but with the additional input of they uh, should be completed by the GP normally, and the GP has access to the previous medical records. So you, hopefully, can't get concealed medical history. So that, that's an opportunity. Um, or maybe we should just go for the driving standards. Um, DVLA Group 2. Um, There are some basic investigations carried out, but essentially it's based on the the history that's given by the the individual. Or maybe even just the car drivers, and that's you could reasonably argue that. But even there, in in all of those instances, incapacitation of the pilot or the driver results in an immediate threat to safety. If a member of cabin crew is incapacitated, that only becomes a threat to safety if the aircraft has to divert because of the medical situation, or the very unlikely event that that incapacitation happens to coincide with a major aircraft emergency, such as the need to evacuate. So I'm not sure that we can really define what the acceptable level of aeromedical risk is. Um, do cabin crew incapacitations happen? Well, Stuart Mitchell and Ray Johnson um, reported a, a review of UK mandatory occurrence reports. That's safety reports filed by pilots, um, and theoretically at least one should be filed for every incapacitation of a crew member, including cabin crew. Um, over that period, 810 medical occurrences. Approximately 50% were due to inflant accidents, so burns, scalds, slips, trips, falls, um, not things that periodic medical examination will do anything about. Most of the incapacitations were not serious. They were due to the ones that were due to illness, were due to the common things like gastroenteritis um, or acute upper respiratory tract infections. Again, things that can't be detected by periodic or, or prevented by periodic medical examination. They very res, rarely resulted in a diversion, although. In many situations, the crew member wasn't able to continue operating, uh, and so the the aircraft was often being operated with fewer crew than the regulatory requirement. Despite that, there was no documented record of any flight safety impact. When EASA proposed that we should have cabin crew medical examinations, the Association of European Airlines submitted more evidence. One AE member reported 676 incidents over a three year period. So, when you think of the CAA's notification of 810 over about 11 years, and this airline's 676 over three years, you already get an idea that a lot aren't reported to the CAA. But even so, that's a rate of incapacitation that's not a lot 1.27 per 10,000 sectors. During that time, there'd been one diversion. And again, that followed an episode of acute trauma. So nothing that could have been prevented by medical assessment. There were no other operational safety implications. survey of four airlines similarly showed a, a very low incidence of diversion as, as a result of cabin crew incapacitation, uh, none of them preventable by periodic medical screening. So the conclusions I come to from that are cabin crew incapacitation does occur, On occasions, it does lead to a diversion, and there is an associated flight safety risk with any diversion. Most cases of incapacitation are due to minor illness or trauma. few incidents would be prevented by periodic medical screening, and there's no evidence, in my view, to support a regulatory requirement for cabin crew medical screening on safety grounds. Okay, so if we're not going to do it on safety grounds, what about occupational health grounds? I've already said that cabin crew do perform a range of physically demanding roles. It's a strange environment. They may have to manage a wide range of minor and occasionally serious incidents in a remote environment. And they may have to reassure passengers who are anxious, frightened, or drunk. So, what guidance do airlines give to people who are thinking about being flight crew, cabin crew, about the um, standards required for their medical fitness. Um, Not terribly consistent, not terribly helpful, I would suggest. Um, Most of them specify a minimum height, although they can't agree on what that minimum height ought to be. Um, Some of them have a maximum height, and you might be surprised at that until you think some of the cabins that crew have to work in are actually not that big, and if you're standing up and trying to work with your head bent over all the time, it's actually quite difficult. They almost all mention weight in proportion. Um, they don't specify weight, it's just got to be about right. Um, some of them mention good physical health, uh, some of them mention swimming ability. So they're all talking about a good standard of medical fitness, um, physical fitness. So, how fit are cabin crew? Well, not very, according to a survey carried out by uh, this chap, Walter Dalich, of the US Navy. Um, he did the work as part of his MPH and he presented it to asthma meetings over a number of years. Uh, he screened randomly selected occupational health records of almost 1,600 flight attendants uh, amounting to 40% of that airline's crew. About 38% of them had a potentially disqualifying medical condition assessed against the requirements for AME issue of an FAA third class, which is a private pilot medical certificate. Um, now, a lot of those conditions could be waived subsequently, um, but he felt that, you know, common conditions things neurological, uh, ENT, <coughs> cardiovascular, musculoskeletal, HIV, alcohol, drug abuse. Um, I must have mis- missed his presentation on psychiatric and psychological illness, because there's a lot of that about. Um, his conclusion was that uh, only a thorough medical history and physical examination can elucidate who might not be physically qualified. Um, Is there any evidence to support that? Well, just before I joined British Airways, all cabin crew um, had an extensive uh, pre-employment medical assessment. At a questionnaire, they saw a nurse and had technical screening not just the usual blood pressure weight and urine, but they had an ECG, audiometry, uh, an armful of bloods. Um, And then they saw a doctor for an examination. There weren't any set medical standards, no audit, and no information on failure rates. Um, And the doctor group felt that they weren't adding much value, um, but they needed to get some some hard data on that. So colleague at the time, Andy McGregor, developed a fairly comprehensive book of standards and we took the doctor out of the equation for most of it. So, all selective, selected candidates still had to come for a medical assessment. Um, they had a questionnaire, a nurse screening and assessment, following the guidelines. If they didn't meet the guidelines, they then had to see an occupational physician um, for a final decision on whether they, they met the criteria. The new approach was audited. So, what did it actually achieve? We looked at uh, 1,674 prospective cabin crew and only 57 of them were found to be unfit and 34 of those were identified from the history alone. And If you look at some of the ones who were identified by examination, 12 of that 23 were uncorrected visual acuity. Um, All they needed to do was go and see an optician and get a pair of specs and they became fit. What about the cost? Was it worth it? It was taking a lot of nurse time, um, taking a lot of money uh, in order to exclude 34 people who could be identified on history alone, and 23 most of whom you probably actually didn't need excluding. And What was particularly significant for the airline was that this took quite a long time. Um, And Airline industry is psychical, when they need to recruit, they need to recruit quickly and the medical assessment was seen as a significant factor and therefore cost in delaying recruitment. So after some more discussion, we decided we could abandon the medical examination completely. So from 2001, everyone who applied for BA cabin crew um, and got through the first interviews was sent a medical questionnaire which they returned to Bars BA Health Services. If they wore glasses, they had to provide an optician's report, They had to provide a dental report, and if there was anything on there that was positive, they got a phone call from an occupational health nurse uh, to to screen them to see if anything further was needed. Very occasionally, they would ask for a medical report from a GP or a specialist. And then finally, if they still couldn't make a decision, an occupational physician would review them. So did that work? We started excluding fewer, um, 0.7% as opposed to 3.4% under the previous scheme. Um, Now That could just be because candidates knew that they weren't going to have a face-to-face assessment and they didn't have too much trouble lying about their medical history on a paper form. However, in the 12 months after that audit, no no employment problems arose from newly recruited cabin crew who had pre-existing medical conditions either declared or undeclared. Some people will still argue that a comprehensive pre-employment medical assessment can reduce sickness absence, so I undertook undertook a further audit um, looking at a five-year period in which there were just over 5,000 new entrant cabin crew, 91 of whom declared a possibly significant medical condition which required some follow-up by a nurse. Um, over that period of five years 926 crew were referred to BA Health Services by their manager. A number I found quite staggering 1,443 of them had stopped being cabin crew but only 16 of them had left for medical reasons. Looking a bit closer at those who'd been referred 43 of them had declared or had a significant pre-existing medical condition. Fifteen of them hadn't disclosed that at their pre-employment assessment. Only one crew member was terminated as a consequence of having a pre-existing medical condition. All the others got back to work as cabin crew. So, findings from that audit. Very high turnover of new entrant cabin crew. Other people come in, try it, don't like it, or for various reasons, um, move on to something else. Most people are honest. If you give them a form and say, Tell us about your medical history, they do actually tell you. Most people who refer to occupational health don't have a pre existing medical condition. Most return to duty. Medical reasons for termination represent a very small fraction of that very high turnover, and undisclosed medical conditions almost never lead to termination. So that's, that's a bit of audit, um, fairly rough and ready, not very scientific. British Airways was keen to try and get some scientific basis for assessing the medical fitness of their, their cabin crew. Uh, one of the things that stimulated that was the number of crew that were asking for extension belts because they couldn't do up the harnesses. Not very encouraging. Um, so they asked the human factors department at Cranfield. To help identify the physical demands of cabin crew role and to develop a set of physical assessments that could be used in selection and ongoing assessment of cabin crew. You'll notice Helen Muir and John Ernsting's names on that that piece of work, um, sadly both no longer with us. Uh, The work's unfortunately never been published. I had been talking to Helen just before she developed her illness about trying to rectify that and I do hope at some point that this work can be published because there's not much out there in the, in the literature and this would be a valuable addition. So I'm very grateful to British Airways for allowing me to present the results. The study was carried out um, with a literature, literature re- review, task analysis and then collection of some physical data. Task analysis, well, number of sources. First of all, they went to the procedural manuals that tell you how the task ought to be carried out. And then they went and saw how it was actually carried out with some direct observation, both on operational flights and during safety equipment training. That looked at both normal operational tasks and abnormal and emergency operations, and their findings were reviewed by what were deemed to be subject matter experts, so crew trainers, safety managers, union reps, and indeed some members of cabin crew. They wanted to collect some physical data, so they set about identifying physically demanding tasks. Um, They looked at aircraft measurements, so how how high will you have to lift things to, um, how wide are the aisles and so on. Got some information about aircraft inclines in flight. So, what gradient do you have to push a trolley up to? Um, Depends on the flight. If you've ever been on a full service BA flight to Paris, um, it's almost wheels up trolleys out. Looked at weight and they looked at force required to close doors, lockers, etc. And then they collected some physical data. So, they got some volunteer cabin crew. Uh, and got them to wear heart rate monitors while they were actually working. Um, They looked at both long haul and short haul, different aircraft types. 103 crew, um, an excess of males, 42% compared with 33% in the crew population, but otherwise well matched by fleet and by grade. Um, There were observers from Cranfield and they included a physiologist as well as BA management and staff reps. And one of the challenges of doing this sort of work is actually getting the agreement from both management and unions, staff reps, to allow you to do it. The results show that cabin crew work is moderately physically demanding. I've heard a lot of cabin crew saying to me it's very physically demanding the evidence doesn't support that. The typical heart rate was in the range 80 to 120 beats per minute. Um, This is real-time measurement in in operational flights. So it's taking into account the hypoxic environment. Part of that is because many of the physically demanding tasks happen over a relatively brief period of time. So they push the trolley up the aisle, stop, bit of service, move on a couple of rows, bit of service. Highest mean heart rates, well, not surprisingly, pushing the trolley on your own or pulling the trolley on your own uh, is the hardest work they do. Pushing it with a colleague doesn't seem to make that much difference to your heart rate. Um, Maybe a colleague doesn't actually give you that much help. Um, Recommendation from it, though, was the trolleys are clearly a significant factor in terms of the physical workload, so that ought to be used in assessing fitness. The next stage was they thought, well, we will assess how physically fit current crew are. They got 62 volunteers, 18 male, 44 female. Um, Range of basic uh, anthropometric data um, and also some functional capacity data um, using equipment that you would see in your typical gym. Um, Bench presses, uh, a poly row, grip strength, shoulder presses, lifting weights um, and then a 20 metre trolley push or pull uh, either along a flat um, or inclined surface. So, what do they conclude about current crew? Well, they're pretty similar to most people, really. Uh, Similar characteristics to other, I like the phrase, non-athletic adults. (laughs) That probably counts for most of us as well, I think. Um, but they weren't exposed to any undue cardiovascular stress. Um, And As a result of both the previous work and this assessment, um, Cranfield came up with a recommendation for a seven-point assessment tool which would take approximately 10 minutes to complete. The recommendations were that cabin crew should, or perhaps must, be tall enough to reach X metres. They didn't feel able to define that, Partly because it's a policy decision that we're affected by the aircraft type that you're flying on, um, so but measured by vertical functional reach, um, so how high you can reach, not how tall you are. Um, they ought to not be too wide to be able to face forward and go down the aisles. Essentially, what that means. <laughs> They ought to be able to close a full, um, they used the example of a Boeing 777 locker, um, which you can assess if you can achieve a 13 kilogram force shoulder press or can lift 65 kilograms per hand using free weights. You should be strong enough to place a full cabin bag in an overhead locker. Now, when you get on board the aircraft, the crew will tell you that it's not their job to put your bags in the locker. And of course it's not, but they should be strong enough to do it if they have to. They need a certain amount of hand grip strength, but it's at the level of poor stroke low strength, which is 17 kilogram force. And they ought to be able to exert sufficient force to push or pull a full trolley. They also recommended um, that you should take into account other evidence. So in flight, particularly when the crew are on their probationary period. Can they actually push and pull for full service trolleys? And can they put bags in lockers? And you can take the additional uh, advantage of annual SEP and medical training, which have pass fail criteria anyway. So, can they open and close the doors? Can they wear the smoke hoods and carry out the firefighting procedures? Can they deal with disruptive passengers? And can they perform CPR? In other words, it's the standard occupational health assessment. Of if somebody can do the job, they're probably fit enough to do it. So that's what cabin crew should be. Um, just as I come towards the end, some thoughts about cabin crew themselves. Why do people want to be cabin crew? Go to nice places, catch malaria. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you don't like the African routes. Go to much nice places. Get Dengue. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's get away from the tropics. Let's go skiing. Um, Liz Wilkinson's in the audience. She knows how much the broken bones cost the company. So I've made that sound not very attractive, and perhaps I'm being a little unfair to cabin crew, because it's not all about the fun and the parties. And many of them contribute an enormous amount uh, in their charitable work down route and, to be fair, in the UK as well. Before I finish, I'd just like to acknowledge some assistance I've had in putting together this lecture, particularly British Airways, the British Airways Heritage Centre, Virgin Atlantic and RDT Limited. Hopefully, I've given you some insight in what it takes to be a member of cabin crew. But I would like to remind you that sometimes cabin crew do make the ultimate sacrifice. And this lecture was about Stuart Memorial. It's also about Barbara Harrison, George Cross. Thank you very much. Thank you for your attention.
0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.